there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hey everyone, it's Carter. This week on Unsolved Murders, we're doing something a little different. We're excited to bring you Edgar Allan Poe's 1842 short story, The Mystery of Marie Roget, in which he attempted to solve a real murder case, as you've never heard it before. As many of our longtime listeners know, we covered the murder of Miss Mary Cecilia Rogers in February 2017 and explored the mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe in October 2016. Every day this week, we released an episode of our adaptation, which is considered to be one of the first murder mysteries to feature details from a real crime. This is the final episode of a five-part series. If you haven't listened to the previous installments yet, check them out before resuming this episode. And thank you so much for tuning in. In part four, our protagonist, C. Auguste Dupin, used several outwardly unrelated local newspaper clippings to allege various versions of events the night of Marie's death and the month preceding. What proof exists that this horrific and intimate murder was the work of a gang, and what motive might a third party, unexplored by the police thus far, have for such a brutal killing? Without further ado, we are excited to present part five of Unsolved Murders, the mystery of Marie Roget. We will resume this question by mere allusion to the revolting details of the surgeon examined at the inquest. It is only necessary to say that his published inferences, in regard to the number of ruffians, have been properly ridiculed as unjust and totally baseless by all the reputable anatomists of Paris. Not that the matter might not have been as inferred, but that there was no ground for the inference, was there not much for another. Let us reflect now upon the traces of a struggle, and let me ask what these traces have been supposed to demonstrate. A gang but do they not rather demonstrate the absence of a gang? What struggle could have taken place? What struggle so violent and so enduring as to have left its traces in all directions between a weak and defenseless girl and the gang of ruffians imagined? The silent grasp of a few rough arms and all would have been over. The victim must have been absolutely passive at their will. You will here bear in mind that the arguments urged against the thicket as the scene are applicable in chief part only against it as the scene of an outrage committed by more than a single individual. If we imagine but one violator, we can conceive, and thus only conceive, the struggle of so violent and so obstinate a nature as to have left the traces apparent. And again, I have already mentioned the suspicion to be excited by the fact that the articles in question were suffered to remain at all in the thicket where discovered. It seems almost impossible that these evidences of guilt should have been accidentally left where found. There was sufficient presence of mind, it is supposed, to remove the corpse. 
and yet a more positive evidence than the corpse itself, whose features might have been quickly obliterated by decay, is allowed to lie conspicuously in the scene of the outrage. I allude to the handkerchief with the name of the deceased. If this was accident, it was not the accident of a gang. We can imagine it only the accident of an individual. Let us see. An individual has committed the murder. He is alone with the ghost of the departed. He is appalled by what lies motionless before him. The fury of his passion is over, and there is abundant room in his heart for the natural awe of the deed. His is none of that confidence which the presence of numbers inevitably inspires. He is alone with the dead. He trembles and is bewildered. Yet there is a necessity for disposing of the corpse. He bears it to the river, but leaves behind him the other evidences of guilt. For it is difficult, if not impossible, to carry all the burthen at once, and it will be easy to return for what is left. But in his toilsome journey to the water, his fears redouble within him. The sounds of life encompass his path. A dozen times he hears or fancies the step of an observer. Even the very lights from the city bewilder him. Yet in time, and by long and frequent pauses of deep agony, he reaches the river's brink and disposes of his ghastly charge, perhaps through the medium of a boat. But now what treasure does the world hold? What threat of vengeance could it hold out, which would have power to urge the return of that lonely murderer over that toilsome and perilous path to the thicket and its blood-chilling recollections? He returns not. Let the consequences be what they may. He could not return if he would. His sole thought is immediate escape. He turns his back forever upon those dreadful shrubberies and flees as from the wrath to come. But how with a gang? Their number would have inspired them with confidence, if indeed confidence is ever wanting in the breast of the errant blackguard, and of errant blackguards alone are the supposed gangs ever constituted. Their number, I say, would have prevented the bewildering and unreasoning terror which I have imagined to paralyze the single man. Could we suppose an oversight in one, or two, or three? This oversight would have been remedied by a fourth they would have left nothing behind, for their number would have enabled them to carry all at once. There would have been no need of return. Consider now the circumstance that in the outer garment of the corpse, when found, a slip, about a foot wide, had been torn upward from the bottom hem to the waist, wound three times round the waist, and secured by a sort of hitch in the back. This was done with the obvious design of affording a handle by which to carry the body. But would any number of men have dreamed of resorting to such an expedient? To three or four, the limbs of the corpse would have afforded not only a sufficient, but the best possible hold. The device is that of a single individual. And this brings us to the fact that between the thicket and the river, the rails of the fences were found taken down, and the ground bore evident traces of some heavy burden having been dragged along it. But would a number of men have put themselves to the superfluous trouble of taking down a fence for the purpose of dragging through it a corpse which they might have lifted over any fence in an instant? Would a number of men have so dragged a corpse at all as to have left evident traces of the dragging? And here we must refer to an observation of Le Commerciel, 
an observation upon which I have already in some measure commented. A piece, says this journal, of one of the unfortunate girl's petticoats was torn out and tied under her chin and around the back of her head, probably to prevent screams. This was done by fellows who had no pocket handkerchiefs. Coming up, the absence of handkerchiefs at the crime scene continues to generate debate. Now, back to the story. I have before suggested that a genuine blackguard is never without a pocket handkerchief, but it is not to this fact that I now especially advert, that it was not through want of a handkerchief for the purpose imagined by Le Commerciel that this bandage was employed, is rendered apparent by the handkerchief left in the thicket, and that the object was not to prevent screams appears also from the bandage having been employed in preference to what would so much better have answered the purpose. But the language of the evidence speaks of the strip in question as found around the neck, fitting loosely and secured with a hard knot. These words are sufficiently vague, but differ materially from those of Le Commerciel. The slip was 18 inches wide, and therefore, although of muslin, would form a strong band when folded or rumpled longitudinally, and thus rumpled it was discovered. My inference is this. The solitary murderer, having borne the corpse for some distance, whether from the thicket or elsewhere, by means of the bandage hitched around its middle, found the weight in this mode of procedure too much for his strength. He resolved to drag the burthen. The evidence goes to show that it was dragged. With this object in view, it became necessary to attach something like a rope to one of the extremities. It could be best attached about the neck, where the head would prevent it slipping off. And now the murder bethought him, unquestionably, of the bandage about the loins. He would have used this, but for its volution about the corpse, the hitch which embarrassed it, and the reflection that it had not been torn off from the garment. It was easier to tear a new slip from the petticoat. He tore it, made it fast about the neck, and so dragged his victim to the brink of the river. That this bandage, only attainable with trouble and delay, and but imperfectly answering its purpose, that this bandage was employed at all, demonstrates that the necessity for its employment sprang from circumstances arising at a period when the handkerchief was no longer attainable, that is to say, arising, as we have imagined, after quitting the thicket, if the thicket it was, and on the road between the thicket and the river. But the evidence, you will say, of Madame de Luc points especially to the presence of a gang in the vicinity of the thicket, at or about the epoch of the murder. This I grant. I doubt if there were not a dozen gangs, such as described by Madame de Luc, in and about the vicinity of the Barrière de Roule at or about the period of this tragedy. But the gang which has drawn upon itself the pointed animadversion, although the somewhat tardy and very suspicious evidence of Madame de Luc, is the only gang which is represented by that honest and scrupulous old lady as having eaten her cakes and swallowed her brandy without putting themselves to the trouble of making her payment. Et hinc Eli irai? But what is the precise evidence of Madame de Luc? Quote, 
A gang of miscreants made their appearance, behaved boisterously, ate and drank without making payment, followed in the route of the young man and girl, returned to the inn about dusk, and recrossed the river as if in great haste. Now, this great haste, very possibly, seemed greater haste in the eyes of Madame de Luc, since she dwelt lingeringly and lamentingly upon her violated cakes and ale, cakes and ale for which she might still have entertained a faint hope of compensation. Why, otherwise, since it was about dusk, should she make a point of the haste? It is no cause for wonder, surely, that even a gang of blackguards should make haste to get home when a wide river is to be crossed in small boats, when storm impends, and when night approaches. I say approaches, for the night had not yet arrived. It was only about dusk that the indecent haste of these miscreants offended the sober eyes of Madame de Luc. But we are told that it was upon this very evening that Madame de Luc, as well as her eldest son, heard the screams of a female in the vicinity of the inn. And in what words does Madame de Luc designate the period of the evening at which these screams were heard? It was soon after dark, she says. But soon after dark is at least dark, and about dusk is as certainly daylight. Thus it is abundantly clear that the gang quitted the barrier de rule prior to the screams overheard by Madame de Luc. And although, in all the many reports of the evidence, the relative expressions in question are distinctly and invariably employed, just as I have employed them in this conversation with yourself, no notice whatever of the gross discrepancy has, as yet, been taken by any of the public journals or by any of the myrmidons of police. Coming up, the theories surrounding the involvement of a gang are examined. Now, the conclusion of the story. I shall add but one to the arguments against a gang, but this one has, to my understanding at least, a weight altogether irresistible. Under the circumstances of large reward offered, and full pardon to any king's evidence, it is not to be imagined for a moment that some member of a gang of low ruffians, or of any body of men, would not long ago have betrayed his accomplices. Each one of a gang so placed is not so much greedy of reward or anxious for escape as fearful of betrayal. He betrays eagerly and early that he may not himself be betrayed. That the secret has not been divulged is the very best proof that it is, in fact, a secret. The horrors of this dark deed are known only to one or two living human beings and to God. Let us sum up now the meager yet certain fruits of our long analysis. We have attained the idea either of a fatal accident under the roof of Madame de Luc, or of a murder perpetrated in the thicket at the Barrière de Rule by a lover, or at least by an intimate and secret associate of the deceased. This associate is of swarthy complexion. This complexion, the hitch and the bandage, and the sailor's knot with which the bonnet ribbon is tied, point to a seaman. His companionship with the deceased, a gay but not an abject young girl, designates him as above the grade of the common sailor. Here the well-written and urgent communications to the journals are much in the way of corroboration. The circumstance of the first elopement, as mentioned by Le Mercury, tends to blend the idea of this seaman with that of the naval officer who is first known to have led the unfortunate into crime. 
And here, most fitly, comes the consideration of the continued absence of him of the dark complexion. Let me pause to observe that the complexion of this man is dark and swarthy. It was no common swarthiness which constituted the sole point of remembrance, both as regards Valence and Madame de Luc. But why is this man absent? Was he murdered by the gang? If so, why are there only traces of the assassinated girl? The scene of the two outrages will naturally be supposed identical. And where is his corpse? The assassins would most probably have disposed of both in the same way. But it may be said that this man lives and is deterred from making himself known through dread of being charged with the murder. This consideration might be supposed to operate upon him now, at this late period, since it has been given in evidence that he was seen with Marie, but it would have had no force at the period of the deed. The first impulse of an innocent man would have been to announce the outrage and to aid in identifying the ruffians. This policy would have suggested. He had been seen with a girl. He had crossed the river with her in an open ferry boat. The denouncing of the assassins would have appeared, even to an idiot, the surest and sole means of relieving himself from suspicion. We cannot suppose him, on the night of the fatal Sunday, both innocent himself and incognizant of an outrage committed. Yet only under such circumstances is it possible to imagine that he would have failed, if alive, in the denouncement of the assassins. And what means are ours of attaining the truth? We shall find these means multiplying and gathering distinctness as we proceed. Let us sift to the bottom this affair of the first elopement. Let us know the full history of the officer, with his present circumstances, and his whereabouts at the precise period of the murder. Let us carefully compare with each other the various communications sent to the evening paper, in which the object was to inculpate a gang. This done, let us compare these communications, both as regards style and manuscript, with those sent to the morning paper at a previous period, and insisting so vehemently upon the guilt of Manet. And, all this done, let us again compare these various communications with the known manuscripts of the officer. Let us endeavor to ascertain, by repeated questionings of Madame de Luc and her boys, as well as of the omnibus driver, Valence, something more of the personal appearance and bearing of the man of dark complexion. Queries, skillfully directed, will not fail to elicit from some of these parties information on this particular point, or upon others, information which the parties themselves may not even be aware of possessing. And let us now trace the boat, picked up by the bargemen on the morning of Monday the 23rd of June, and which was removed from the barge office without the cognizance of the officer in attendance and without the rudder at some period prior to the discovery of the corpse. With a proper caution and perseverance, we shall infallibly trace this boat, for not only can the bargeman who picked it up identify it, but the rudder is at hand. The rudder of a sailboat would not have been abandoned, without inquiry, by one altogether at ease in heart. And here let me pause to insinuate a question. There was no advertisement of the picking up of this boat. It was silently taken to the barge office and as silently removed. But its owner or employer, 
How happened he, at so early a period as Tuesday morning, to be informed, without the agency of advertisement, of the locality of the boat taken up on Monday, unless we imagine some connection with the Navy, some personal permanent connection leading to cognizance of its minute in interests, its petty local news? In speaking of the lonely assassin dragging his burden to the shore, I have already suggested the probability of his availing himself of a boat. Now we are to understand that Marie Roger was precipitated from a boat. This would naturally have been the case. The corpse could not have been trusted to the shallow waters of the shore. The peculiar marks on the back and shoulders of the victim tell of the bottom ribs of a boat. That the body was found without weight is also corroborative of the idea. If thrown from the shore, a weight would have been attached. We can only account for its absence by supposing the murderer to have neglected the precaution of supplying himself with it before pushing off. In the act of consigning the corpse to the water, he would unquestionably have noticed this oversight, but then no remedy would have been at hand. Any risk would have been preferred to return to that accursed shore. Having rid himself of his ghastly charge, the murderer would have hastened to the city. There, at some obscure wharf, he would have leaped on land. But the boat, would he have secured it? He would have been in too great haste for such things as securing a boat. Moreover, in fastening it to the wharf, he would have felt as if securing evidence against himself. His natural thought would have been to cast from him, as far as possible, all that had held connection with his crime. He would not only have fled from the wharf, but he would not have permitted the boat to remain. Assuredly, he would have cast it adrift. Let us pursue our fancies. In the morning, the wretch is stricken with unutterable horror at finding that the boat has been picked up and detained at a locality which he is in the daily habit of frequenting, at a locality, perhaps, which his duty compels him to frequent. The next night, without daring to ask for the rudder, he removes it. Now where is that rudderless boat? Let it be one of our first purposes to discover. With the first glimpse we obtain of it, the dawn of our success shall begin. This boat shall guide us, with a rapidity which will surprise even ourselves, to him who employed it in the midnight of that fatal Sabbath. Corroboration will rise upon corroboration, and the murderer will be traced. For reasons which we shall not specify, but which to many readers will appear obvious, we have taken the liberty of here omitting, from the manuscripts placed in our hands, such portion as details the following up of the apparently slight clue obtained by Dupin. We feel it advisable only to state, in brief, that the result desired was brought to pass, and that the prefect fulfilled punctually, although with reluctance, the terms of his compact with the Chevalier. Mr. Poe's article concludes with the following words. It will be understood that I speak of coincidences and no more. What I have said above upon this topic must suffice. In my own heart there dwells no faith in preternature. That nature and its God are two, no man who thinks will deny. That the latter, creating the former, can at will control or modify it is also unquestionable. I say at will, for the question is of will, and not, as the insanity of logic has assumed, of power. It is not that the deity cannot modify his laws, but that we insult him in imagining a possible necessity for modification. 
In their origin, these laws were fashioned to embrace all contingencies which could lie in the future. With God, all is now. I repeat then that I speak of these things only as of coincidences. And farther, in what I relate, it will be seen that between the fate of the unhappy Mary Cecilia Rogers, so far as that fate is known, and the fate of one Marie Roger up to a certain epoch in her history, there has existed a parallel in the contemplation of whose wonderful exactitude the reason becomes embarrassed. I say all this will be seen. But let it not for a moment be supposed that, in proceeding with the sad narrative of Marie from the epoch just mentioned, and in tracing to its denouement the mystery which enshrouded her, it is my covert design to hint at an extension of the parallel, or even to suggest that the measures adopted in Paris for the discovery of the assassin of a grisette, or measures founded in any similar ratiocination, would produce any similar result. For, in respect to the latter branch of the supposition, it should be considered that the most trifling variation in the facts of the two cases might give rise to the most important miscalculations, by diverting thoroughly the two courses of events, very much as, in arithmetic, an error, which in its own individuality may be inappreciable, produces at length, by dint of multiplication at all points of the process, a result enormously at variance with truth. And in regard to the former branch, we must not fail to hold in view that the very calculus of probabilities to which I have referred forbids all idea of the extension of the parallel, forbids it with a positiveness strong and decided, just in proportion as this parallel has already been long drawn and exact. This is one of those anomalous propositions which, seemingly appealing to thought altogether apart from the mathematical, is yet one which only the mathematician can fully entertain. Nothing, for example, is more difficult than to convince the merely general reader that the fact of sixes having been thrown twice in succession by a player at dice is sufficient cause for betting the largest odds that sixes will not be thrown in the third attempt. A suggestion to this effect is usually rejected by the intellect at once. It does not appear that the two throws which have been completed, and which lie now absolutely in the past, can have influence upon the throw which exists only in the future. The chance for throwing sixes seems to be precisely as it was at any ordinary time. That is to say, subject only to the influence of the various other throws which may be made by the dice. And this is a reflection which appears so exceedingly obvious that attempts to controvert it are received more frequently with a derisive smile than with anything like respectful attention. The error here involved, a gross error redolent of mischief, I cannot pretend to expose within the limits assigned me at present, and with the philosophical it needs no exposure. It may be sufficient here to say that it forms one of an infinite series of mistakes which arise in the path of reason through her propensity for seeking truth in detail. Thank you for listening to our final episode of our five-episode series covering the mystery of Marie Roger. Unsolved Murder's True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>